Good morning. It's good to uh, be with y'all. It's good to be at my home church and get to preach. Uh, it's fun to um, be here week in and week out um, that we're now working back through the book of 2 Samuel. Um, so if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 7. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to spend all of our time in that particular passage. We'll deal real briefly with the first verse of chapter 8, uh, but not too much in chapter 8. We'll be in 2 Samuel 7. So go ahead and turn there. As I was mentioned, my name's Sam. I'm a member here at the church. Uh, it's good to get to be here with you all this morning and get to walk through this passage with you. If you have your Bible, ooh, I sound Real great. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it, turn it on. You know, the warm glow of God's face or God's, uh, God's word on your face from your phone, whatever that is. Go ahead and stand. We'll read all of 2 Samuel 7 and then we'll work through this passage. The word of God says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, he said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the, all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall come from your, uh, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? 
And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your own promise and according according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no one beside you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? And the one, nation, the, the one nation on earth whom you, God, went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out peop, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. For your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God of Israel. In the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts... The God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may come so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. God, we thank you for the word of God that you give to us. God, that we are able to open it, to read it. God, and then to speak to you about it and to speak to each other about it. God, it's been something in my mind this week that the same, you are the same God who made this promise to David and we get to come to you in prayer regularly. Every moment even if we wish. God, if we want at 3 a.m. to come and knock on you the king's door, we can. God, this is a great and awesome thing for us. And God, be with us now. Be with me now, God, as was prayed earlier. May I hide behind the cross and may Jesus be magnified. God, may we be edified. May we be rebuked. May we be encouraged. May something happen, Lord. Just don't do nothing. God, we need you to move. We need you to sustain us, to give us life. And in these moments, God, we need you to show us through your scriptures, through the Bible, that you are our king. God, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine this with me. David and Nathan, they've just finished a meal. They walk out of, you know, they're in David's new house. They walk out on the patio at David's, David's house. They sit down, they have a couple drinks. They're just having a good conversation. While they're talking, David's eyes land on the tent where the ark that they had just brought back to Jerusalem, or just brought to Jerusalem, is now residing. David sees the tent and you know, he and Nathan are talking, and as they're talking, he's looking around his house, and he smells it. it smells like cedar wood. Anybody have a cedar closet? You walk in there, and you're like, 
smells really good. He, he's looking at his house. He's given, given all of this uh, great things by the king of Tyre, a king of a different country. has given him all this wood to build this really nice house. He's really happy with it. He's pleased with it. It looks good, smells good. And then as he's looking around, his eyes fall back on the tent, a tent that's maybe 300 years old. It's been all throughout the desert in the book of Exodus been set up and torn down and set up and torn down and set up and torn down. And then with the judges, it's been set up and moved and place to place. And then it's been raided. Someone has come, the Philistines came and they took the ark away. So the tent's probably looking a pretty, pretty shabby, right? Maybe a little, the colors aren't as vibrant as they once were. He looks at it and he's, he sees it and he knows that inside of that tent is the ark of God. And he starts to think, you know, I don't have to fight anybody right now. I don't have to do anything right now. So I could build, I could build, a, t- I could build a building for that ark. I could build a house for God to dwell in. So he says it. He says, you know, Nathan, I, I live in a house of cedar. I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark, the ark is in a tent. So then Nathan responds and he says, he approves of this. He says, do all that's in your heart. And of course, why not? Why wouldn't Nathan say that? If you, I mean, let's be honest, if we came up, Pastor Brandon and Dominic aren't here, so this is a good example. (laughs) So if you came up to one of them after service, let's say they're here, and you said, hey, you know, I want to pay off the entire debt of this building. I want to pay it off, and then what I also want to do is I want to make sure it's retrofitted to meet the exact needs, all the needs that we as the bridge will have. I want to make sure that this building is taken care of and that everything is established. I really doubt one of them would be like, you know what, hold your horses, buddy. Maybe we shouldn't do that just yet. No, of course not. You know, do all that is in your heart. Please do. If anybody in here feels so led, I'm sure they want to hear that. Therefore, talk to them, you know, when they're here. So he, of course, he says, do all that's in your heart. Later that night, though, you know, I like to imagine that Nathan gets back to his house. He's maybe getting ready for bed. He's kind of replaying the day throughout his mind. He's thinking through, you know, all the things that have been said, the conversation, you know, maybe the meal, all the conversation that he and David had. And then he remembers, you know, David said this, and I told him do this. And we read in verse 17 later in this, in this passage that a vision comes to David. The word of the Lord comes, or comes to, Nathan, to Nathan. The word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And then Nathan's mind is changed. Now, we should expect the same thing of our pastors, right? We should expect that they are men of prayer, that they are men of God, that as they make decisions, they are also doing so prayerfully. And that's what we exactly see with Nathan. He goes back, he hears the word of the Lord through the Spirit, is given a vision, and he changes his mind. But something else is at play here. There's something different going on other than just Nathan, you know, changing his mind and telling David, hey, you know that building project you want to do? Don't do it. There's something else going on here. There's some subtleties throughout the text, which I think are very interesting, but also really important for us to understand what's at play in David's heart. The first thing that we need to notice is that God has given David rest from his enemies. We see that a couple times in verses one and two. David's been given rest from his enemies. Second, we also notice that David's only referred to one way in the first three verses. He's called the king. The king lived. The king said. Nathan said to the king. And this king sees a tent, 
It's a little shabby, a little threadbare. It isn't exactly what it should be looking like, 300 years old maybe. And he doesn't think, you know, God lives in a, a tent. Maybe I should too. Rather, he thinks, the ark should live in a house of cedar like I do. David isn't concerned about God's house. He's concerned about a building or the building for the ark to be in. But remember what we talked about last week with Uzzah. Uzzah who reaches out his hand to keep the ark from falling into the mud because he didn't want the ark to get dirty, quote unquote, with the mud. He, he assumed that the mud was dirty, but he didn't consider the sinfulness of his own hand. He puts it onto the ark and is immediately killed. That same principle that we saw in 1 Samuel, when Samuel comes and he anoints David. And Samuel's like, this scrawny little dude? And God says, I look not on the outward appearance, but what's on the inside. We saw that with Uzzah last week. And here, it's the same principle is true. David looks at the tent and assumes that it is not what it should be because it's not like the house that he lives in. And this is true for us too. How often do we like David and Uzzah and Samuel look on the outward appearance of something and then judge whether it's worthy or unworthy based on the way that it looks? But God has the final say. God's the one that has the final say. All the things that those little clues, this He's referred to as the king. We see that he's been given rest, but in that rest, he is restless. David is restless in that rest that he's been given. But what sets these particular clues of the king and his restlessness in his rest, what sets these in order is the way that God responds. The text says that that, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. The word of the Lord came. We've seen this particular phrase before. In First and Second Samuel, we only see this occurrence three times, this particular phrase, the word of the Lord came. The first time we saw it was when the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And it said, I regret making Saul king over my people. The next time after this that we see it is when David sins by doing a census of the people of Israel. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. David is given a very forceful decision to make. But we see it here, too. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. What's happening is David is restless in the rest that God has given to him. I need to do something for God. I need to build something. I need to make something happen. He's only referred to as the king. His position might be getting to his head a little bit. But also like we saw last week in 2 Samuel 6, David initially moves the ark the wrong way, which proved to be really bad for Uzzah. Here we are though in chapter seven. David is moving on a trajectory that is maybe not very good. Each of the occurrences of the word of the Lord came, God is taking a corrective action in the affairs of men because of the sin of men. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, and because the word of the Lord came to Nathan, David's potential hubris, I think he's moving that direction. You can debate whether or not he's right there in the middle of pride or not, but he's moving that way. He's rebuked, he is humbled, and as we'll see, David praises God. He exalts God because of this correction. 
You see, if David was allowed to continue on these lines, he would soon be ruined as a king. But God graciously reminds him of what he has, what God has done, will do, and is doing for David right now. It's important for us to recognize what's at stake. We just got over the, the, the story of Saul, right? Who, who, who arrogantly took his own thoughts and put them above God's words. We don't need that again. But in these first few verses of 2 Samuel 7, we see that David doesn't know how to deal with his own downtime, which leads to him getting almost in trouble here, but for sure in trouble with Bathsheba in a couple chapters. He's been given rest by God, but he is restless in that rest. But for us, doesn't that sound familiar? You successfully finish some major project, you know, at work or moving or, you know, get your kids through college. Let me know what that's like. <laughs> We're not even near that yet. But then you think, you know, now, now's the time for me to do something great for God. I have all of this time now. Now it's time for me to do something great for God. But ignoring the rest that God gives you can land you in bad places. And we're in a culture that has an epidemic of anxiety. We are in desperate need of rest. We have some of the highest anxiety rates in the world in this country. We are a people in desperate need of rest. And as Brandon preached a few weeks ago, we need the rest that only Jesus can provide. He is our rest. All of our striving can stop because all the necessary work was finished by Jesus on the cross. We do not have to earn our salvation. It's the important message for us to get as a people in need of desperate rest that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And in him we can find rest for our souls. We also need to realize that God will establish the work that we need to do. Later on in 2 Samuel, you'll see that David just doesn't not do anything. He does quite a bit of stuff. He does quite a bit of preparing things for the temple, actually. He gets things ready for Solomon to be able to build the temple. So it's not that David hears this and is like, all right, I'm not doing nothing. That's not, that's not what we're saying. That's not what's happening here in the text. What's happening is that David is being told, not you, not now. You have been given rest. But also God is saying, I have something different, something better for you, something David did not and could not, quite frankly, expect. But even here, we're reminded that the word of the Lord came. It's an allusion even to Jesus coming, who is the incarnate word. As John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is being alluded to even here in the beginning of this particular prophecy that the word of the Lord came. And for both David and us, Jesus comes and gives us rest. So what is the prophecy? What does uh, God say? What's the promise given to David? To sum it all up, God says, I will build you a house and one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. There's two ways to look at the word house in this chapter. The first, of course, is you know, a building, like David saying, I'm gonna build you a house, a, a literal building, a dwelling place for God. I'm gonna build this for you. The other is the way God uses it. He goes, no, David, I'm going to make you a dynasty. From you, I'm going to do something that even you couldn't expect. 
You might read through the scriptures, David. You might look at things like Deuteronomy 12 and as the executive, the king, the one in charge, think, all right, now I know what's the next thing we need to do. Now we need to build a temple. And God goes, no, not you, and I need to do something first before that. One thing I want us to see in the way that the prophecy comes out is God's complete sovereignty. The text makes this clear in verses four through 17 by reminding God and us that all that has happened, is happening, and will happen is because of God. God says to David, he sits him down, and he says to him, David, I brought the people from Egypt. I have moved. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you wherever you went. I will make for you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people. I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will make you a house. I will raise up your offspring after him. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will discipline him. I took the throne from Saul and I put away Saul from before you. God is saying to David over and over and over again, I have done what is necessary. Everything that you needed, I have done. And we must be reminded that it is God who does things. He's the one who moves. He's the one who establishes. He is the one. We are the instruments through which he works. We have to get the concept of the sovereignty of God into our imaginations and our practice. That we can look forward to the week to come and say, I can see what it looks like to do my job this week as God is sovereign, not myself. David's kingship is a witness to God's sovereignty. It's not something that's to obscure it, to get in front of it. It's the thing that is giving witness to the Lord's kingship. That is the house that God is building. The message that Nathan gives to David is dominated by a recital of what God has done, is doing, and will do. So the chapter, though it starts with David kind of full of himself, full of the ideas of what he's going to do for God, with David now being subjected to a comprehensive rehearsal of what God has done, is doing, and will do for David. Oftentimes we live like life is up to us. That our jobs maybe, our wake up time, the snooze button this morning, moving the phone to the other room. That our parenting or our health, our finances or our grieving, our leadership or our marriages and more, that these things are up to us. I could, we could dare to say we live like there is no God. But do you know? Do you know that God cares more about your marriage than you do? Amen. Do you know that he, order, that he ordained all of those good works that you can do at work, at your job, before the foundation of the world? Do you believe that God cares more about your sister's health than you do? Can you unclutch, unclutch the abilities or the disabilities of your child and give those precious souls to the one who has fearfully and wonderfully made them? It's an easy rut for us to fall into where the happenstance and you know, the mundaneness of life kind of wear down all of our best intentions, 
our most authentic times of worship and they leave us feeling like life is left up to us. Maybe our best efforts, worst efforts, even apathetic efforts. We have to get it into our minds that God, that God, that God, not us, governs the movements of the universe, the feeding of the birds and the giving of our daily bread. He is the one that took us from sinners and made us saints. He is the one who made us alive together with him. He is the one who holds us in our redemption and no one can snatch us away from his hand. If we are not clear with ourselves on a daily basis that we are the sinners and that Christ is the savior, that God has saved, is saving, and will do everything necessary to bring us safely home, we will easily fall into the mindset that our works or our abilities, that our talent or our words aid in keeping us in our salvation or keeping our salvation steady. But that is not the case. The only thing the only thing that you have contributed to your salvation, the only thing that I have contributed to my salvation is the sin that has made it necessary. The gospel is not Jesus plus my own abilities. It is Jesus and Jesus alone, full stop, period, nothing more. It is in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my rock, my strength, and my all. And just like David is reminded that he is who he is because of the sovereignty of God, we also need to be reminded that we are who we are because of the sovereignty of God. From beginning until the end, we start and are kept and will be preserved in the faith by the grace of God. And to recall what we said a few weeks ago, this is why Jesus' burden is light. This is why his yoke is easy. Because he has done all that is necessary for us to be called the children of God. He's borne the wrath we should bear. He lived the life we should live. He died the death we were condemned to die. Salvation is the free gift of God through grace, not of works, lest any of us should boast. And this chapter bears witness to that. We've got to remember the sovereignty of God. But also we need to understand what this passage is ultimately pointing at. If we're not careful with kind of how Old Testament prophecies work, we can get really kind of confused very easily. So there is an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy and then an ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. So another way to say it is there is a near fulfillment of this prophecy and then there is a far fulfillment of this prophecy. So we read, you know, verses 13 through 15, we notice that God is speaking about a son, the son that will come from David. God will be to him a father and his offspring will be to God as a son. Sounds good. But then God speaks about the son being disciplined for his iniquity for his sin. At first, you know, I think we could say all signs initially point to Jesus. And then this line comes in about the iniquity of the son. And we go, wait a second, what are we talking about now? But the thing again to know about the prophecies is there's the near fulfillment and then there's a far fulfillment. There's an immediate and then there is an ultimate. The near fulfillment of this particular prophecy is Solomon. And maybe you can say all the subsequent kings of Israel that sit on David's throne. That's the near fulfillment. 
the immediate fulfillment. Solomon builds a temple physically, a very beautiful temple, one that history remembers and claims this promise for himself. He does this in 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, that after, he, after he establishes the temple, he says, David will not lack a man to sit before God on the throne. So while Solomon builds an incredible temple and the throne of Israel and Judah is established in Solomon, Solomon is not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Solomon sins, and pretty majorly at that. He marries like 700 women from all different countries and tribes, and then he allows himself to be led astray to worship the gods of his wives. So Solomon is disciplined by the rod of men. The kingdom is broken into two. There's the tribe of Judah that remains, and then there's Israel. He's disciplined by the rod of men, but God remains faithful to his promise. He remains faithful to his promise by looking to the one that will establish the throne forever. But it's also important that from here on out, we are shown that every king that sits on David's throne acts as a representative of the people of God. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. If the king is faithful, things are pretty good for the people. If the king is unfaithful, things are pretty bad for the people. When the king is following, th- following God, things tend to go pretty well. We read that all through the rest of you know, uh, First and Second Kings. You can get a recap in Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. But it's also part of God being faithful to his promise. He's faithful to his promise after Solomon and the kingdom of Israel is divided. However, God retains the line of David on the throne of Judah, just like we sang about because he was faithful to his promise to David. Time after time after time, when the kings on the throne of David are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And God even remains faithful through the exile. So when uh, the Assyrians come in, they destroy the Solomon's temple, and then from there you're like, where's the king on David's throne now? We read about that in Isaiah where it says, that the tree may have been chopped down because of the sinfulness of David's sons, but the stump would sprout because of the faithfulness of God to his word, which leads to the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy. And yes, it's Jesus. Let me give you a really, really big and really, really fast overview of kind of the prophecies in the Old Testament. You have in Genesis 1 with Eve, she's given a promise. One of your descendants is going to crush the serpent's head. Super big. And then from there, it goes down to Abraham. And and we're told that through him, one of his offspring will bless all the nations of the earth. Great. Then we slide back down to Judah. And Judah in chapter uh, Genesis 49, we're told that Judah, that the scepter of the ruling scepter will not pass from, from Judah forever. Great. So up until this point, we have a very wide funnel at the top moving smaller and smaller and smaller. But what's important to note here is that this is what David could never have expected. That now God is going to, 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 to make the funnel its smallest point that we will ever see in the Old Testament. David, through your family, from Eve, through Abraham, through the people of Israel, in the tribe of Judah, now in the family of David. Through you, the one will come that will crush the head of the serpent. 
We see this when the angel comes to Mary in Luke and he says, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Israel forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Or when Peter on the day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, says that God swore an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. David foresaw that and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus that God has raised up of whom we are all witnesses. What we see is that Jesus establishes the real temple in his body. I'll build for you a house, David, and your son will build me a temple, the real temple in his body. Jesus is the word of the Lord come to us. Just as the word of the Lord came to the prophet so to, 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 to correct the sins of men, so the incarnate word of the Lord, Jesus, came to us to offer us redemption from our sins. Jesus bears the stripes of men. It's a beautiful verse, and I think it's a gospel beautiful verse in verse 14 where it says, he bears the stripes of the son of men, and it really points forward to what Isaiah says, that by the son of man's stripes, we would be healed. The real son of David is being pointed here. The one who would establish the real temple of God, bear the real stripes of his people, and bring the real presence of God to his people. And like all the other kings are kind of representatives of the people of Israel, so Jesus becomes the representative of the people of God. We read about this later in, in Romans that Jesus is the new Adam, and that in him we are born into life. So then how do we respond to this? It's a lot going on inside of the prophecy. David could not have expected that this would be for him. So what does David do? How does David respond? He sits. He's at the beginning of the chapter. He's ready to do things. Let's get up. Let's get moving. Then this happens. And then now he's, he's sitting. What's fun about the word sit here is it's the same word that's used for dwell at the beginning of the chapter. See, I dwell in a house of cedar and the house of, or in the ark dwells in a tent. Now David sits, he goes, he sits before the Lord. He, is, uh, he abides, he remains. When we began, he was restless in the rest that he'd been given. But now, when David sits down before God, it's the farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It's prayer. David is still before the Lord, abiding in his temple, dwelling in the house. Sitting. And it's important to recognize here for David and even for us that it's not an issue that like while David is sitting there in the, the temple that his legs will stop working and he won't be able to move. That's not what's gonna happen. But there is a greater danger for David and for us of getting so caught up in our God plans that we forget all about God. It's important for us to sit before the Lord in the rest that the Lord provides, especially while we do the work of the Lord. And then out of this sitting, David worships through prayer. And we're invited in to see how he prays after a paradigm-shifting moment and probably one of the most impactful passages in the Old Testament. David's filled with wonder. 
David's prayer is filled with over 60 uses of God's name, either through personal pronouns or direct reference. David is now overflowing. He's like, let me shake up a can of soda and it explodes. He's exploding about God. Before his mind was filled with himself and now he is filled with God. David's desire has been reined in by God. Now he sits and then he pours forth praise to God about God. And for us, oftentimes the most helpful thing we can do for our own spiritual growth is to pray out loud the characteristics of God that we know to be true from the Bible. But something else I think is interesting here is how David responded to this correction, to this prophecy. He hears it and he's pliable. David hears this and he's pliable in his response. He hears the correction, receives the correction, and praises God because of the promise by which he has been corrected. David hears it, receives it, praises God because of it. Can we say the same about ourselves? When we are corrected, are we kind of grumpy and sullen and angry? Or are we able to hear it, to receive it, to praise God for it? After David sits, he praised God in prayer. I'm going to point out three things from this prayer. First is in verse 19. David says, this is instruction for mankind. This phrase just stopped me this week as I was studying. I couldn't get past it for some reason. He says, this is instruction for mankind. Why? Why would these words now be instruction for mankind? Literally, he uses the word Torah, which if we know our Bible, that's the first five books of the Bible. He says, Torah, this is instruction for mankind. David says that because all of history hinges on this moment. All of creation has been waiting for the Son of God to be revealed, the one who would crush the serpent's head. David prays that this is instruction for all mankind because what, if, what Peter references in Acts 2, that because of, uh, of the resurrection of Christ, we are all changed. This is instruction for all mankind because as we just talked about, Jesus is the new Adam and in him, a new people are being birthed into the family of God. We are now called children of God. We break history into two parts at Jesus being the center. He is the crux, the middle of it all. This is why it's the instruction for all mankind. And for us in the church, like we talked about a few weeks ago, this is instruction for all mankind because Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the end, the firstborn among us who were dead, that in everything he would be first. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he has made peace with us by the blood of his cross. What David is referring to is the hinge point for all of history. That is why this is instruction for all mankind. Second, he talks about he tells God to do as you have spoken. You see it four times throughout the passage. Do as you have spoken. David says, fulfill the promises you've made to me and do as you have spoken. And the reason that he says it is in verse 26, and your name will be magnified forever. The promise concerning David's house is an awesome one. Just imagine if you're that person who came up to Brandon or Dominic and are like, hey, I'm gonna pay for everything. And God's like, no, 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 no. You don't do that. I'm gonna do that for you instead. 
God says, no, I'm going to do that for you. If someone in here got that promise, we'd be all like, all right, that's a pretty big promise. That's pretty great. But what is interesting is how David responds to this. He, does, he doesn't say, do as you have spoken, because I want a big house. I want to be a dynasty. He says, do as you have spoken, because you will receive glory from this Lord. He says, do as you have spoken, O Lord, and your name will be magnified forever. But how often do we do things and ask for things for our own names to be magnified, for our own personal comfort or satisfaction or even reputation? That's not the goal of the work of God, and it should not be the aim of our lives. We are not in this life for our own magnification, but for God's. David knew this, and then he called on God to fulfill his promise so that not David's name would be magnified, but that God's name would be magnified. The third thing I want you to see from this is that David prays the promises of God. He prays back the promises of God. If you follow the outline of the prophecy and the outline of the prayer, they're very similar. David basically just (laughs) repeats what God said. God, you said this, you said this, you said this. In verse 27, he says that he finds courage to ask these things. He says, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, because of this, therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. So there's been many times in my life, many. I just don't have words to pray. I've got emotions, a lot of them, but no words. Times in life where kind of the lostness of the world is a big deal. Lots, if we believe as Christians that there is an eternal hell, and if people don't know Jesus, that's where they will go, we should be burdened then for the lost. And when that is too much, Psalms 2 has the promise that I run to time and time again, ask of me and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. When I've got doubts about my own salvation or salvation of others, Promises like Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Or in my own struggle with anxiety and depression, losing family members, loss of two of our children to miscarriage, looking to the promise of Revelation, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God and God himself will be them as with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more crying or mourning, no more pain because the former things have passed away. We're like we talked a few weeks ago, just tired. Come to me, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. We can take per- courage by knowing and praying back the promises of God. 
Let's be honest. We're not reminding God of things. We're not like, God, remember you said that's like when I say something to my son, like I'm gonna do this. And he's like, but you said daddy. Like, and then I, cause I forgot, you know, God's not up there forgetting his promises. He's faithful even when we are unfaithful. He remembers when we forget. So we're not reminding God of the things that he has said, like some weird, you know, child. We are not doing that. Rather, we're reminding our own selves what God has promised for us. This gives our hearts courage by remembering the great love of Jesus for us and the great love of the Father for us. But it also means that we need to know the promises of God in order to pray the promises of God. David takes courage from this promise of God and prays back these promises to God. And we can do that and should do that too. We can pray with this type of courage, and we should. We should pray this way because we know that Christ will come back and return in glory. So we should take courage as we pray. For we have a God who hears us. He intercedes for us. He can sympathize with us. He has promised us to make justice roll down like the waters. But also I want you to see real quick in chapter eight, verse one, the, 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 the way in which things move forward from here. In chapter one, you, verse, or chapter eight, verse one, rather, we read this. After, this. after this prophecy, after this prayer, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. So like all throughout first Samuel and up until this point, like this, the Philistines are the bad guys, right? Like, they're the bad guys. They're, you know, David and Goliath style bad guys. Like they are the ones who stole the ark from uh, the, the tent of meeting back when Samuel was a little boy. Uh, they pass it around all over through their country for a while. They're the ones who are constantly making war with the people of Israel. They're the ones that kill Saul and Jonathan. And then here David subdues them. And I think it's interesting and kind of a literary note of the book that we don't hear a word from them until the end of the chapter, or the end of, of 2 Samuel. So up to this point, they're kind of always there wrestling against the people of God. And then all of a sudden, David subdues them after this promise, and we don't hear a thing from them until a lot later. It's interesting to note that particular thing. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the prayer? What do we do with the prophecy? What do we do with the restlessness of David? How do we apply this in our life? First, I think we need to understand that sitting does not mean you're doing nothing. Sitting before the Lord does not mean you're doing nothing. I think a lot of evangelical Christians, who we are, are characteristically too afraid of being caught doing too little for God, let alone nothing. But there are moments, and they're far more frequent than we think, try once a week, when doing nothing is exactly what God has given us to do. As Brandon talked about again a few weeks ago, if we take Jesus' light burden on ourselves and his easy yoke, we are leaning into our rest in Jesus. We're leaning away from our restlessness. As he bears our burdens, as he leads us to the work that he has for us, so often it is much easier to follow Jesus and what he is doing than trying to drum up our own work for ourselves. More often than not, 
More often than not, for us as Christians, our good intentions get us in the most trouble. Let's be honest. We do bad things. We sin. We're convicted, usually by the Spirit. Maybe a brother or sister comes to us and they say, hey, bro, hey, sis, you shouldn't do that. That's not good. But when we do good, we become pleased with ourselves and we receive the applause and the commendations of leaders and friends. And because of this, we easily lose our sense of dependence on God and our ever-increasing need for his grace. We start to practice our righteousness before others so that they can see us. But let's be frank and let's be honest. We may be filled with good intentions, but our good intentions cannot bring us closer to God than Jesus already has. Our good intentions cannot bring us any closer to God than Jesus already has. So let me tell you another way we can apply this. There's a king. There is a king bridge. When you walk out of here today, there is a king. When you wake up to work tomorrow, to go to school tomorrow, to take care of the children tomorrow, there is a king. And he does not sit in the mayor's office. He does not live in the governor's mansion. He doesn't live in the White House. He's not the CEO of your bank. He's not your boss. He's not the judge or the jury of your peers. He does not live in the opinions of others or the flattery of your friends. He is not the whim of the culture that we swim in. Hollywood cannot define him, but the wise still seek him. The children run to him and the broken are cared for by him. The burdened are made light by him and the oppressed are freed by him. The sick and the injured are healed by him and the outcast is welcomed by him. Friend, he brings the dead to life. There is a king He's the one who at the end of time, we will say, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll for you were slain and by your blood, you have ransomed us, your people. For God, for you've ransomed us for God from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. And he has made us, Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests to our God and we will reign with him on the earth. Bridge, there is a king. He is the living one. He is the first, he is the last. He holds the keys to death and hell. He was the one who was slain, but he is the one who was raised. His name is Jesus Bridge. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the one who all history hinges on. It is Jesus. And like the text says, who are you? As David prays, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Who are you? David knows who he is. He's called a servant. Friends, Christ has come and called us brothers and sisters. We aren't servants anymore. We are children. God has made us children because of Jesus. We are the ones who are far off that have been brought near. 
We are the lost ones that have been found. We are the ones who have been brought from wrath to righteousness. We are the ones brought from the grave to grace, from despair to delight, from the darkness to the light, from brokenness to healing. You were brought from the bottom of the barrel to the freedom of life in the sun. You were brought from the loneliness of life unto the protecting, loving, cherishing care of a hope-filled and hopeful father. Behold, Christian, you were dead, but now you are alive. Our weeping has been turned into joy. Our mourning has been turned into laughter. Our singing and our sorrow has been turned into singing. Our pity has been turned to praise. Our blindness has been turned into sight. Our doubts have been turned into faith. You are the poor in spirit who will receive the kingdom of God. You are those who have mourned who will be comforted. You are the meek who will inherit the earth. You are those who hunger and you thirst for righteousness and you will be satisfied in the sun. All of this is who you are, Bridge, because of Jesus. And it's at the name of Jesus, this king, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That all of our tears will be wiped away, that all injustices will be righted, and that death, death will finally be put to death. And our king's rule will have no end. We also need to recognize, as David did, God has brought us this far. Remember where you were when he found you? Where are you now? God has brought you this far. God also is going to bring you safely home. He makes the promise to David, and we need to understand that promise is for us as well, that he will not leave us in the shadows. He won't forsake us in our hurt. He might walk us through a valley, but he won't leave us there. Sometimes we lose the road that we're walking. Sometimes that road just doesn't seem fair. But God won't leave us halfway there. He's not going to start us on the journey and leave us. He doesn't start us on faith and tell us to figure it out. He says, I am enough and I have completed it. And Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is finished, Bridge. There is a king and his name is Jesus. And this is the gospel that we have called to proclaim, that we have been called to proclaim. We're not proclaiming a gospel of a politically left or a politically right gospel. We are not proclaiming a gospel of selfisms, of self-help. We are not charged with any of that. We are ambassadors of the king. We have been given a message of reconciliation that you too can become a child of God. And it's this that we proclaim. We proclaim it in this room. We proclaim it where we work. We can proclaim it in our homes, to ourselves, to our children, to our spouses, to our friends. We take it to Togo. We go to the places least reached and least popular with the gospel of hope because Jesus has done that with us. While we were dead in our sins, he came to us to make us alive. While we were dead, Jesus fulfilled all that was necessary. This is the gospel that we proclaim. 
Jesus has come and lived the life that we should live, but we could not live. Jesus came and he died the death that we deserve. He bore hell for us, that he was buried, that he was raised again to life on the third day. And in his raising, he defeated death, crushed the serpent's head and made us alive together with him. And then we say, and this king is coming soon. The promise has been made. I will come again. I will return. God has spoken his promise. Here he spoke his promise to David and he fulfilled his promise to David. He has spoken a promise to us. I will come again. The king is coming, friends. He is coming soon. We proclaim the gospel message until he comes. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your kingship. God, that you are sovereign on the throne. Lord, that you are the one that is returning. God, that you are the one who sits on David's throne. God, we, along with David, marvel that you would choose us. Who are we that you would bring us this far? Who am I, O Lord, and what is my family that you have brought us this far? God, I pray that we would be spurred on from this to take this message of reconciliation to the king, to the world. God, that we get to tell our friends that Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible has told me so. God, I pray for us as the people of the bridge. I pray that we would be burdened for the lost. I pray that we would proclaim the goodness of Jesus. God, that we would step aside and let the cross be magnified, that Jesus be magnified, that, Lord, you would be glorified. God, I pray for what was spoken this morning. God, I pray for the truth that was said, that it would be remembered. God, I pray that if anything was said that was not true, Lord, it would be forgotten. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.